like you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look this morning at verses 17 to 22. This passage has to rate as one of the most difficult passages in all the Bible. But I think as we go through it today, you're going to agree that it's also one of the most fascinating passages in all the Bible. Now Peter begins with a premise in verse 17. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. There are two ways to suffer. You can suffer for doing what is right or you can suffer for doing what is wrong. And Peter says it's better to suffer for doing what is right. I was in the grocery store and they had a display of Kleenex boxes and they had them stacked up as high as they could in the room. And I was standing there rather amazed at how the stock boy or whoever got them up there. And while I was watching them, a lady ran into them with her shopping cart. And they shook, and for a moment, I thought the whole thing was going to fall on top of her. And they just shook, and they stayed there. Not one single box fell off. And the lady turned to no one in particular and said, I must be living right. Now, I didn't think that was the time to confront her. <laughs> but that's weak theology. Because, you, you see, you can live right and still knock over Kleenex displays. You can live right and still suffer. In fact, Peter says, suffering can be God's will for you. Now, some preachers tell you that it's never God's will that you suffer. That it's always God's will that you be healthy and wealthy and rosy and cozy. Well, that's weak theology too. In fact, if you look at chapter 4 and verse 19, Peter says, Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. Suffering can be God's will for you. And that's Peter's premise. You say, well, I don't see how a loving God could ever allow anyone for, to suffer for doing good. I mean, how could God ever let that happen? And I don't see how anything good could come out of suffering. Well, Peter seems to anticipate that reaction. And so he goes on in verses 18 to 22 to substantiate his premise by using the example of Christ. And Peter loves to use the example of the sufferings of Christ. He gave us that example at the end of chapter 2. He's going to mention it twice in chapter 4 and again in chapter 5. Notice what he says here in verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Christ also suffered. Now if Christ also suffered, what's that tell us about suffering? You can suffer for doing what is right. You can suffer according to the will of God. And God can bring good purposes out of suffering. 
Now, Peter already gave us an extensive example of Christ's suffering at the end of chapter 2. There he emphasized that Christ suffered for doing what is right. And so here his emphasis is more on the fact that Christ suffered according to the will of God. God had a purpose in it. And I would this morning like to divide this passage into four purposes that came out of Christ's suffering. Now, we could divide it chronologically because this passage really lays out for us the events in the suffering of the Lord Jesus because it tells us about His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. But what I would rather do is what Peter does. He emphasizes the results of that suffering. And so I want to point out four things. Reconciliation, celebration, salvation, and exaltation. Four things that came out of His suffering. First of all is reconciliation, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Now Peter calls Jesus the just. That is the righteous one. You see, everything He did was right, and yet He suffered and He died. Now why did the just one suffer and die? Well, he tells us in verse 18, for Christ also died for sins. Romans 6.23 tells us that death is the wages of sin. If you sin, you will pay. Well, Jesus never sinned, but He paid anyway. Why? For sins. For our sins. He bore our sins. And then He goes on to say it was the just for the unjust. He suffered in our place. He was our substitute. He, the just one, died for us, the unjust ones. You see, if God were too loving to ever let anyone suffer for doing good, where would we be? And then Peter goes on to remind us that it happened once for all. Romans chapter 6 and verse 10 says, For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. Hebrews 7.27 says, He doesn't need to offer sacrifices over and over again as the priest did in the Old Testament because this He did once for all when He offered up Himself. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Hebrews 10.10 says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, why does God emphasize that point over and over again in Scripture? Well, I think it's because He wants us to understand that Jesus' death was completely and totally sufficient. Christ died once for our sins, the just for the unjust. He suffered for doing what is right. And what was the purpose? Look at verse 18. In order that He might bring us to God. That, in a simple statement, is the goal of all religion. Man, through all his religious efforts for all time, has tried, been trying to get to God. And if you remember, when God came down in the Old Testament on Mount Sinai and brought the law, it says there was lightning and thunder and the mountain shook and the people of Israel backed away from the mountain in fear. 
But here we're told that the Lord Jesus came to another mountain, Mount Calvary. He came to bring grace. And the result is that he brought us to God. When Jesus was dying on the cross, the veil in the temple that kept men away from God was torn from the top to the bottom. And God essentially was, was changing the sign on the door from closed to open. From no trespassing to welcome. Christ brought us to God. He reconciled us. He took us by the hand and God by the hand and He brought our hands together and He reconciled us to God. And that is only made possible one way and that's by the suffering and death of Christ. You don't meet God anywhere else but the cross of Christ. And so the first purpose of Christ's suffering is reconciliation. We are brought to God. Then there's a second purpose, and that is celebration. Look at the end of verse 18. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now your Bible may have a capital S Spirit there. That's an interpretation because in the Greek language there were no capitals. And in fact, the article the is not before the word spirit here, which it typically is when he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And so I take this to be spirit little s, which means his human spirit. And then it preserves the contrast here between his flesh being dead and his spirit being alive. You see, this is not a reference to the resurrection. He talks about the resurrection down in verse 21. This is a reference. You see, in the resurrection, his body was made alive as well. Here he says his body is dead, his spirit is alive. He's talking here about what happened at his death. Remember when Jesus died? One of the things he said at that moment was, Father, into thy hands I commit what? My spirit. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, His Spirit was liberated. Now the question is, where did He go? Where did Jesus' Spirit go during the three days when His body was in the tomb? Well, there are some well-meaning people who teach that He went to hell and suffered there for three days. Well, that's not true. In fact, that's actually more untrue than some people realize. Because that really discredits the work that Jesus did on the cross. If Jesus had to suffer for one minute in hell after the cross, then that tells me that what happened on the cross was not completely sufficient. When Jesus was on the cross, He said, it is what? Finished. He accomplished the work of our reconciliation, our salvation on the cross. And when He died, it was finished completely. That's why He could turn to the thief next to Him on the cross and say, today you shall be with Me in paradise. One of the places Jesus went in His Spirit when His body was in the tomb is He went to be with the Father in paradise. Into Thy hands I commit My Spirit. But... 
He also went somewhere else. Look at verse 19. In which, that is, in his spirit, also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Wow. Two important questions out of this verse. Who are these spirits? And what did Jesus proclaim to them? What did Jesus preach to them? Two possibilities for who these spirits are. Some people say they are human spirits. Some people say they are fallen angels. Those are your two options. If you take them to be human spirits, some people say, because verse 20 talks about them being disobedient in the time of Noah, some people say that Christ went in His Spirit thousands of years before this to preach to these people through Noah. I'm throwing that out because that's one of the most popular positions on this passage. A lot of evangelical pastors take that position. That what he's saying is that Jesus in His Spirit way back when Noah was a preacher of righteousness spoke through Noah. That's the way they explain this passage. The other option is what we read here, that his body died, his spirit was quickened, and in his, his spirit he went to hell and he spoke to the departed spirits of human beings. Now the question is, what did he tell them? Well, some people say he gave them a second chance. And that's totally opposite of everything else we read in Scripture. Uh, the Bible says it's, it's determined for a man once to die and after that the judgment. There are no second chances. The other option, some people say, is that he went down because these were actually Old Testament saints and he went down to free them from Hades and bring them to paradise. Well, that doesn't work either because these are not Old Testament saints. These are Old Testament ain'ts. It says they are still presently in prison. Uh, and, and it says in verse 20, they were disobedient. Th these were the people who were, if you're going to take it that way, these were the people who were disobedient in the time of Noah. They were so evil, God flooded the earth to destroy them. The other option is that he went down to pronounce judgment on them. Um, Seems to me they already understood that. They were in, it says they're in prison. Uh, I guess if you take that position, you say that Jesus went down to say, na-na-na-na-boo-boo. -boo. <laughs> the other option is that these are fallen angels, and Jesus goes down to announce His triumph and to celebrate over them. Now, you may already realize that's the position I take. Well, let me tell you why. This word spirits, whenever it's used in the Bible without qualification, is never used of human departed spirits. Whenever it's used that way, it's always qualified to tell you that. Whenever this word is used without qualification, it's used of angels, whether good angels or bad angels. For, for example, in Hebrews 1.14, it tells us that angels are ministering spirits. Jesus said in Luke 10.20, don't rejoice that the spirits 
are subject to you. And so I take this to be fallen angels that he's talking about here in verse 19. And verse 20 sheds a little more light on them. It says, these spirits now in prison who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now verse 20 tells us that these spirits now in prison are somehow associated with Noah. They're related closely to Noah. Now with that in mind, look at 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter writes a second letter. And in chapter 2 and verse 4 he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. He says there are some angels in pits of darkness, prisons, being reserved for judgment. And notice what verse 5 says, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. And so here he mentions these angels again in his second letter, and who are they closely associated with? With Noah. Now, angels can be divided into two categories. There are two categories of angels. There are elect angels and there are fallen angels. There are good angels and there are bad angels. And then when you talk about those fallen angels, there are two categories of fallen angels. There are loose angels, which would be demons. They are loose right now. They are roaming around the earth. They're just like Satan. He is a fallen angel. The Bible says he's like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. They are loose. They are traveling around this earth. And then there's another category of fallen angels, and those are confined. They are said to be in chains. They are said to be in pits of darkness. They are said to be in prison. They are confined until the day of judgment. So there are two categories of fallen angels. There are those that are loose, and there are those that are confined. Peter is talking here about those that are confined. Now, what did they do wrong? Well, look at Jude 6. Jude is that little book right before Revelation. Only one chapter long. It says in verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now here are some angels. They are chained, it says, in darkness for the judgment of the great day. What did they do wrong? It says they didn't keep their own domain. They abandoned their proper abode. They didn't stay where they were supposed to stay. And then more specifically, look at verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality, and went after strange flesh. Now I want you to notice that one phrase. It says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality. In the same way as these what? In the same way as these angels in verse 6. He says, the angels are in pits of darkness, chained for the day of judgment, and Sodom and Gomorrah committed the same kind of sin that the angels did. What kind of sin was it? Gross immorality. 
and they went after Sarkos Heteros, strange flesh. Remember in Genesis chapter 19 when God sent the two angels to visit Lot? They came to Sodom, and it says the men of Sodom desired to have sexual intercourse with these two men. People of Sodom went after strange flesh. That's speaking partly about homosexuality, but when the angels came there, they desired even the angels. I believe what he's telling us here is that the angels did the very reverse. They didn't keep their abode. They went after strange flesh, which would be human beings to have sexual relations with. You say, well, that sounds pretty, pretty out there. You say, well, how, how could an angel have sexual relations with a person? Well, we see throughout Scripture that angels took on human bodies. In Genesis 18 and 19, we see that example I just referred to. Uh, in fact, in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2, it says that you should show hospitality to strangers because you may entertain an angel unaware. That verse has always fascinated me. It, it tells me that it may be that an angel could take on a human body and you would entertain them and not even know it. So angels can take on human bodies. So if I'm right, then what it's saying here is that there are angels who are chained and imprisoned because they committed immorality around the time of Noah. Now, do we have anything in the Scripture that indicates that? Well, go back with me to Genesis chapter 1. I'm, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1. Genesis 6.1 Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. The daughters of men and the sons of God. Now who are the sons of God? Phrases only used three other times in the Bible, every time in the book of Job, and every time it refers to angels. For instance, Job chapter 1 and verse 6 says, There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Lucifer came in among them. So this term, the sons of God, is used consistently throughout the Old Testament of angels. So what he's saying is that angels saw the daughters of men, and took wives for themselves. And if you slide down to verse 4, it says something interesting. It says the Nephilim. Now, Nephilim is just a transliteration of the Hebrew word that means giants. Giants were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now you have a, a angels coming down taking bodies, having relations with women, marrying them, the offspring are giants. Some suggest that this may have been the place of origin for the stories of half-human, half-divine figures in ancient mythology. It goes back to this time. We certainly see the hand of Satan in this. 
Because Satan would do whatever he could to mess up God's redemptive plan. And if he can have a mixture of half angel, half man on the earth, then you've got all kinds of problems with God's plan of redemption. A mixed up race. You say, well, are these people still around? I mean, kind of reminds me of some of my in-laws. How did God deal with this problem? Genesis chapter 7 tells us that He drowned them all in the flood. This is one of the reasons God just said, I've got to wipe the slate clean and we're going to start over, over again with Noah and his family. So who are these spirits? I believe they're fallen angels. Now, second question, what did Christ preach to them? Come back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Well, it couldn't have been the gospel because there is no redemption for the angels, but you know, the word proclaimed in verse 19 is an interesting word. It's not the word evangelizo, which means to proclaim the good news. It's the Greek word caruso, which simply means to proclaim. Jesus was not asking for a response. He was just telling them the facts. He was proclaiming His victory over these fallen spirits. In fact, let me show you a couple other verses. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8. Ephesians 4.8 says, Therefore it says, When He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. Now that's an analogy from the Old Testament times. When a king won in battle, he came back to his capital city and he brought captives, usually the captive king and some other captives, and he would bind them and they would come walking behind him as he came in during his victory parade. And then he would take the spoils from the victory and he would give them to his people. That's the picture Paul is painting here. Who are the captives that he brought captive behind him? Well, they are the fallen angels that are bound to this day. And then look at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14. Colossians 2.14 Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, those are the angels, he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him. God made a public display of these angels and Jesus triumphed over them. Now let me ask you this. When did Jesus win the victory over Satan and the demonic host? Well, he won that victory on the cross. First prophecy about Jesus is in Genesis 3.15 where Adam is told that the seed of the woman, which is Christ, would bruise the serpent on the head and he would be bruised on the heel. He would win that victory over Satan when he got bruised on the heel. Where did he get bruised on the heel? On the cross. And so when Jesus died on the cross, in His Spirit, He went to celebrate over the fallen angels who are now in prison. And that's the second purpose of Christ's suffering, celebration over His opponents. Which brings us to the third point, and that is salvation. Look at verse 20. 
who once were disobedient, and then he mentions when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now it's interesting that he brings up Noah in this context of suffering for doing what is right, because Noah is a classic example of that as well. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 5 says he was a preacher of righteousness. Noah built the ark... And he preached for about 120 years. If you can imagine what that was like. I mean, he had uh, Noah's shipyard and petting zoo. He, he had to give a defense for why he had giraffes in his backyard. And if you think about Noah, he preached for 120 years and he got absolutely no response. And it says here, only a few, that is eight persons, were saved by water. Now, your Bible may say saved by water. It may say, be saved through water or from water. Actually, it can be translated either way. Saved by water or saved from water. And really, both are true. Because Noah took his family and they got into the ark and God sent the judgment. That judgment was expressed in the form of the water that came. They were saved from the water because they were in the ark. They were also saved by the water because what did the water do? It destroyed the earth. As a result, when the ark landed, Noah and his family came out into a whole new world. So they were saved from the water because they were in the ark. They were saved by the water because it made a whole new world for them to live in. And then he goes on to say in verse 21, and corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, in the early church, every believer was baptized. There was no such thing in the early church of somebody who was saved and not baptized. And so he simply uses this analogy. He says what happened to Noah and his family is like what happens to us in baptism. Now, Romans chapter 6 Verses 3 and 4 tells us that baptism speaks of our identification with Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. And there it says that when we're identified with Christ in that sense in baptism, we come forth to walk in newness of life. Baptism is a picture of our union with Jesus Christ. It's also a picture of our separation from our old self, our old life, and our new walk in this new world. See, Peter is saying because we are in Christ, identified with Him through baptism, He takes the judgment we deserve. In fact, in Mark chapter 10 and verse 38, Jesus referred to His suffering as the baptism with which I will be baptized with. Jesus took the baptism of judgment so that we would not have to take that baptism. And that also separated us from this sinful world to walk in newness of life. Now don't get confused here. Peter is not saying that the physical act of baptism saves you. In fact, he adds a parenthesis in verse 21. He says, in corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, not water on your body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. You see, it's not that external experience that saves you, it's the internal experience that results in a good conscience before God because you have forgiveness in Jesus Christ. 
fact, if you push this analogy too far, you're going to be in trouble. Because we believe in immersion. And in the analogy of Noah and the flood, everybody who got immersed didn't come up. You see, the real issue is those who entered the ark were saved. And those who enter into Jesus Christ are saved because we identify with Him in His death, burial, and resurrection. And Peter really makes that very clear at the end of verse 21 because he says our, our salvation is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I found an interesting verse in Genesis 8-4. It says, The ark came to rest on Mount Ararat on the seventeenth day of the seventh month. Now, you might read that and think, well, I don't really care. Seventeenth day of the seventh month would be April 17th. Passover was later established on April 14th. So this would be three days after Passover, which tells me that the ark came to rest on the mountaintop on the very same date that Jesus rose from the dead. And those people came out of the ark to walk in newness of life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He went through the waters of judgment and we come out to walk in newness of life. And Peter is saying baptism is the picture of that union we have with Him and of the fact that we are now separated from the world around us to walk in new life. So the third purpose of Christ's suffering is salvation. And then the fourth purpose is exaltation in verse 22. Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to Him. He has gone into heaven. There's His ascension. And we're told here He is sitting at the right hand of God. That's the place of privilege and power and angels and authorities and powers are made subject unto Him. Through Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection, He has brought all things into subjection to Him, even the fallen angelic beings. There's a verse you're very familiar with, and you might overlook part of it sometimes. It's Philippians 2.10 where it says, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in the heavens and things on the earth and things under the earth. You see, Jesus through His suffering brought all things into subjection to Him. Jesus is now in the place of glory and Peter is saying that's what follows suffering in the will of God. Peter said it this way back in chapter 1 and verse 11. He said the prophet spoke about the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Christ is the evidence to us that there is a purpose in suffering. Jesus' sufferings resulted in reconciliation, celebration, salvation, exaltation. He came to glory through suffering. And the same can be true of you and me when we suffer in doing what is right according to the will of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for this passage that in some ways is difficult to understand, and yet it reveals to us 
the price you paid to willingly suffer in our place and the great benefits we enjoy by simple faith in you, Lord Jesus. Challenge those of us to know, that know you to realize that even the sufferings we go through in this world when we're being faithful to you are used as a purpose that you have to accomplish your will in us. And Father, help us to cooperate in all of that to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.